Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Our host today is Dr. Nicole Jackson. She's an assistant medical examiner at the King County Medical Examiner's Office in Seattle, Washington. She'll be speaking with Dr. Heather Gerald, Chief Medical Examiner of the Office of the Medical Investigator in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She's also the Director of Neuropathology at the University of New Mexico. We'll hear their conversation about forensic and neuropathology and the different career paths you can take with each type of training. We'll also hear Dr. Gerald's advice for people considering careers in forensic pathology. Now here's your host, Dr. Jackson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Nicole Jackson. I am about to be an assistant medical examiner for King County uh, in Seattle. I had the pleasure of doing my forensic pathology fellowship from 2019 to 2020 at the New Mexico Office of the Medical Investigator out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, And one of my attendings, who is now the chief medical examiner, is uh, Dr. Gerald. She's also the director of neuropathology and an associate professor of pathology. So welcome, Dr. Gerald. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, So I thought we'd start kind of broad um, and just tell us about yourself. I know you wear a bunch of different hats. So uh, tell us what you're doing now. Sure. I came to the OMI in August of 2014 from Virginia, where I did my training at the University of Virginia for residency and for neuropathology as well. And then I did my forensics fellowship at Virginia Commonwealth University and at the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in Roanoke, Virginia, and then moved out here immediately following my fellowship training. And I started out as a, um, what we call a medical investigator, but the rest of the world knows as medical examiners. And since I had that neuropathology training, I also run the neuropathology service at the office of the medical investigator. And so I've been in that, I'd been in that role for, um, since August of 2014, then was appointed the interim chief um, medical examiner on April Fool's Day to April 1st, (laughs) um, when the pandemic was really hitting New Mexico, and then became the permanent chief on January 7th of 2021. And so here I am. All right. Well, I think they're very lucky to have you. Um, (laughs) Thanks. Someone who trained under you and now has you as a colleague and mentor and sponsor and friend. Um, I clearly think you're great. I'm a little biased, but I'm excited to see where you you take the office. So I do a lot of mentoring and I'll get a lot of people that are interested in forensics um, and possibly neuropath. And so I'll tell them why I considered it and didn't go into it. But then I always recommend they follow up with at least one or two people who chose to do neuropath in addition. So can we tell, uh, can you give us your journey from being a kid, uh, going into pathology, and then deciding to do both? Sure. So as a kid, I was always interested in science. I, uh, I grew up the daughter of the Georgia State Trooper and always had kind of that background knowledge of law enforcement and really couldn't decide, do I want to go into the FBI or do I want to be a pathologist? Um, wow, and, you don't hear that a lot, uh, FBI versus <laughs> pathology. <laughs> right. And so I decided during high school, actually, and in Mr. Ken Murphy's class, uh, 
in high school and it was an advanced biology class that he gave us a kind of a personality test. And the conclusion of that personality test was that I was very good at pattern recognition and that I liked science. And so it actually said that I should consider the field of pathology, which I thought was very interesting because I knew about forensic pathology at the time as well and was one of those kids who grew up watching those true crime TV shows. And so I started reading about that even more and um, went to medical school in Georgia and did a couple of rotations at some of the medical examiner's offices uh, in the South and really actually wondered, is this something that I can do? And would it be depressing to be a forensic pathologist because you're seeing people whose lives just ended? And is that something that you can deal with? And so I went on to the University of Virginia and had the opportunity to moonlight as a local medical examiner, which I found to be exciting. And you got to go to scenes and you got to work with police officers on scene. And then you got to go to the lab and uh, as a resident and do your forensic pathology rotation as a resident and actually see what happens after you go to the scene. And so during my forensic pathology rotation, I really decided this is what I'm gonna do. And that it makes you value how precious life is and to use that extra time that you have at the end of the day to spend with your family and really emphasize on what's important in your life. And so that's really how I came about being a forensic pathologist and did not go into the FBI. And um, so, so here I am. And then neuropathology, actually, to answer the other part of your question, uh, neuropathology actually came about um, because we had, a, we, there still is a wonderful neuropathology fellowship at the University of Virginia where I trained under Dr. Beatrice Lopez, and who really helped tailor my fellowship in neuropathology um, to the medical examiner's office and being the consultant for the medical examiner offices in Virginia. And I would say that the aha moment for me was actually after I finished my rotation and I I finished my fellowships and I was at the OMI and a colleague of mine came to me with a case um, and it was for um, the Innocence Project for which he was um, going to devote some of his time and he shared a case with me in which a forensic pathologist had made the wrong call and I think they had called something a contusion or a bruise on the brain it was actually a stroke and so there was someone sitting on death row because of that call. And that's where I thought, oh, this is where neuropathology can make all the difference in the world. And so that's where I try to train our fellows who come through the OMI on making sure that when you call something, a certain thing that, that you're sure that you're right. And if you're not, when to ask for help. And so that was, that was a couple of years ago, but it was very much an aha moment for this is what can happen if you make the wrong call. 
Oh, yes, definitely. Goodness. Wow, what a story. Um, can you tell for the listeners, um, what's the difference in practice? Say someone did just a forensic pathology fellowship and then goes to practice for someone that just does neuropath and goes into practice for someone who does both. What does life after training look like for those three categories? Sure. So for a person who just, and I suggest, it's still quite a feat to, to um, do the neuropathology fellowship, which is a two-year fellowship. Um, people who go into neuropathology without any forensics um, background and, and no forensics career, they're largely looking at um, uh, brain tumors and what we call medical neuropathology, muscle biopsies, um, nerve tissue. And it's very much making a diagnosis for the patient who's still alive at that time. Um, from, from what I know about the neuropathology community, there's very little training in forensics at that point. And a person who goes into forensics, obviously, uh, would be more exposed to brain injuries and less to brain tumors and things of that nature. Um, people who are FP, NP trained um, have come into it with more knowledge of all the things that you should be thinking about and, and the things that you should consider when making that diagnosis. Is this due to an injury or is this something else? And so that I think is very important and very valuable to enter into the world of forensics with both that training, the FPNP training, because you definitely see a lot of traumatic brain injuries in the world of forensics and the sequelae of the traumatic brain injuries. What happens if a person goes on and survives this um, traumatic brain injury years later? What can we see in the brain and what might we, what might we expect to see in the brain? And so that's actually really phenomenal um, to have that experience and to be able to teach others. How many, if you know, how many doubly trained forensic pathologists and neuropathologists are there in the U.S.? I don't know the exact answer to that. Um, I did ask the, um, the American Board of Pathologists how many were certified, and I've got a really large number, um, but it was the number of people who've ever been certified yeah. since they've started doing certification. Uh, and I don't know the answer to that. I think it's becoming uh, more a, of a popular trend because people are recognizing um, the value in having neuropathology training. And, uh, but I don't know the answer to that. If I had to guess, it's maybe 100, maybe 200 people, if that much. Okay. Higher than I thought, to be honest. In addition to all these roles, I know you are heavily involved in research. Can you tell us some of your research projects if uh, they're not classified? No, they're, they're not. Uh, one, my, one of my um, funded um, projects is through, funded by the National Institute of Justice under the Department of Justice. And it involves um, essentially child abuse cases and looking at imaging using advanced MRI. Uh, we have a seven Tesla MRI at the Brain and Behavioral Health Institute over at the University of New Mexico. And we essentially, you know, the brain is removed at the time of autopsy 
and of course cases that are suspected child abuse cases are our focus and then for controls we use other infant brains um, the brain is removed it's placed in a solution for about a week to let it um, it's placed in a formalin solution to fix then after that we want to take the formalin out because you get some changes on the scan after it's been sitting in formalin. So you rinse it saline and then place it in this other solution called Foblin, which is essentially um, a liquid that you want to mimic um, cerebrospinal fluid. It also removes friction. So what a brain is doing sitting in the MR um, in a person, of course, it's not moving. It's still attached in all the places where it should be attached. We've removed those in autopsy. Um, so to image that brain outside of the body, we place it in that solution so that it's not moving around while it's being scanned because you don't want that. And so we scan it in this seven Tesla, which is a very strong magnet. Most clinical scanners are about a three um, Tesla. So this one's really, really strong. And so we scan it all night long and then get the images the next day. Uh, the neuroradiologist uh, reads it and is blinded to the history, doesn't know whether it's suspected child abuse or not, and gives me the findings. Um, and then I do my thing by examining the brain and taking what I see. Um, what we found so far is that it, not a surprise, but the neuropathologist is a little bit better um, with looking at and finding the the subtle injuries that you would expect with child abuse, um, that namely being diffuse axonal injury. Fascinating. You're so smart. <laughs> um, I wanted to circle back to wellness. Um, as you voiced uh, previously, a lot of people voice hesitation in going to forensics because, you know, it's a potentially very heavy burden to see death face-to-face, -face, day in and day out. Um, and then certainly doing FP and NP and seeing maybe more child abuse cases than the average forensic pathologist. So I wanted to talk to just you and what helps bring balance to your life. Sure. So for one thing I always tell our trainees and um, even more so recently with the pandemic and realizing that everyone's stretched right now is that if there is a particular case on the docket that's a little bit too close to home for you let us know because um, we should be very vocal about not making people do autopsies that they have a personal connection to. Um, for instance, the forensic pathologist here, we don't autopsy children who are our children's ages. And so um, that's the time to speak up and give that particular autopsy to someone else because we recognize that that's a difficult and challenging thing to do. Uh, for me, um, I find balance with Thankfully, I have a husband who's also a physician, and so he is very, very good at um, knowing when I've had a tough day and finding that time to put the work aside. We're going to go for a bike ride with the kids. Um, we're going to have some work-life balance, and so um, also finding a partner who is very supportive in that role and who actually, if you're not cognizant enough to take that time for yourself, actually forces you to designate that time um, for mindfulness and wellness. Another thing that I've started doing even more recently, and I've never really appreciated it till now, is meditation. 
um, thanks to you know technology and all the apps that we have. Um, there's some. I, I just use a, an app that helps me meditate, and that was something that they they tried to get us to do in medical school. And I just kind of shrugged it off and thought I am not that kind of person. Um, but now I really, really appreciate how effective it is and also encourage everyone else to just be mindful, um, set time aside for yourself and realize what your limitations are. Oh, excellent. I recently got into meditation myself. I think I was reluctant because I didn't want to sit alone with my thoughts, but you know, it's better to do it in a controlled environment than have them rear their heads elsewhere. Yes. <laughs> do you have a most interesting or memorable case that you can share? Um, well, I th you probably are, you probably already know the answer to this. <clears throat> and if you want me to tell the story, I will tell it. Is it one of my cases? No, it's a case as a local medical examiner in Charlottesville. Tell it. <laughs> so my most memorable case, and I didn't re realize it would be my most memorable at the time. And it's actually, it actually turned out to be very personal. Um, so when I was a local medical examiner, I was a second year resident in Charlottesville, Virginia. And there was a young girl who had gone missing. She had gone missing from a concert in Charlottesville. And I think that was around in October. And I think it was either late January, early February. It was actually my first week on call as a local medical examiner. And I got a phone call. We think we've found her. We need you to come out to the scene. And so it was very surreal. I asked for a law enforcement officer to actually get me and transport me out there because I, I figured it would be pretty busy on scene and showing up in a personal vehicle. I'm not sure that they would recognize me or let me get on there. So I had an escort take me out to the scene, um, which was a, a farm just south of Charlottesville. And so there were helicopters out there. There was a, just a whole array of law enforcement out there. And we walked out in the middle of the field and I looked at um, the skeletal remains of what turned out to be her. And so um, was able to give law enforcement a little bit of information about what I was seeing on scene. And then, so they, they took her on to autopsy, which if you've ever seen an autopsy on skeletal remains, is basically just examining the skeletal remains and seeing what injury might be there. Um, so she was later positively identified and then a couple of years after that, um, there was another um, student who went missing. Um, this was a University of Virginia student and her body was found um, deceased in a, I, I believe it was like a, a ditch and she was in a state of decomposition. And that was in 2014 when they found her, I believe. Um, that was memorable because I, it was my first year at the OMI working as faculty. And when I interviewed at residency at the University of Virginia, I had completed my interview and I was being taken back to the airport. It was a super early flight. It was kind of in the winter, so it was really dark. And I think it was like a 6 a.m. flight or something like that. So the hotel called a cab and 
I ended up going to residency at the University of Virginia, but the cab driver took me through the woods and he, I didn't know Charlottesville, but I knew that wasn't the way I should be going. So he took me to through the woods and then started saying things which I thought was odd that I, you know, I was cute, that my Southern accent was really cute, but then there was just something at one point where the conversation felt like there was really something sinister in, in the car. And so I started looking for ways to get out if he started slowing down. Um, I started crying and I tried to keep it quiet. I didn't want him to see me crying, but he looked in the review mirror and saw me crying. And he took me to the airport. I think I just threw some money at him, took my stuff and I ran. And I called my dad. It was the Georgia State Trooper. And I said, you know, dad, this guy, I can't tell you what it is, but he was going to do something to me. And so I said, you know, I don't think I could complain because he told me I was pretty. What are they going to do about that? Mm -hmm. So after they found um, the second student in Charlottesville, they showed a picture of the person who was last seen with her. And it was this cab driver. Uh, and they actually showed a picture of him standing next to a cab. And I recognized him immediately. And I called my dad. I said, dad, that cab driver, he's the serial killer. And so they went to trial. They found him guilty. And I think he's serving seven life sentences right now. And so um, that is my most memorable case. And hopefully I will never have another memorable case like that, nor a personal experience um, that ties me to, to a case of mine like that. But um, that's, my, that's my memorable case. Wow. Yeah, that's something you will never forget. Oh, my goodness. I think I had heard part of that previously, but maybe not the full story. So thank you for sharing. Um, I guess a few more questions to wrap things up. Um, so our field, forensics or pathology in general, um, any directions you'd like to see both general pathology go, forensic pathology go, neuropathology grow in the upcoming years or decades? Yeah, so I think that people don't get exposure to forensics until kind of late in their pathology training. And so I'd like I'd like for that exposure to, to change and to really um, let trainees know that, that forensic pathology is out there and that it is a, a pretty exciting, sometimes challenging um, career, but also that to go to the second part of that question, um, I think that the OMI has been the essentially the kind of the, the grandfather institution for postmortem imaging. And, and I think that that's extremely valuable for um, offices and for the nation who is actually experiencing a forensic pathology shortage, um, that CT can be a very useful triage tool that can help supplement um, autopsy and in some cases supplant autopsy findings. And so, and you also are aware of, of that at having trained here and how useful that tool is. So I think that it's becoming recognized more and more by other medical examiner office that it's a powerful tool and that it can actually reduce some of the forensic pathologist caseload. 
All right. And then I wanted to pick your brain about different topic or ideas for recruitment. As you know, pathology is a field that goes unfilled every year by medical students matching into residencies. And we're actually seeing decreased number of students go in every year paired with an anticipated um, nationwide physician shortage in a few decades. So do you have any ideas for ways we can bolster recruitment into both pathology and forensics and or neuropath? Well, I think um, exposure is, is one thing. And then I, I can't take credit for this idea. It was actually mentioned to me by one of my colleagues now, Dr. Clarissa Krensky mentioned that maybe there should be an APFP um, residency uh, choice for people going into pathology, much like there's APNP. And so a lot of people actually find out and while they're in an APCP residency program, anatomic and clinical pathology, that they want to do forensics. Um, I've, I came to that conclusion starting out as APCP. I ended up dropping CP because uh, I didn't think that I would need it as much and adding um, neuropathology. And so for people who already know they want to go into it, that it can get them in the field faster and help supplement um, the pathologist, the forensic pathologist shortage in the country too. So I think that that's something that um, we should look at as an option for training and getting people into the field a little bit quicker. Right. And final question from me. Do you have any advice for people that are considering a career in forensics and or neuropathology? So I can say that the, I will actually say that of all the board examinations I've taken, um, AP and NP, that FP board exam was actually fun, which some people said, don't ever say that again, because it was horrible, but it actually wasn't. It was actually fun. And it was the first exam I ever took that I actually enjoyed, which is a little bit uh, weird. But I think that forensics is, in many ways, you will see, you're going to see tons of gunshot wounds. You're going to see tons of, of the same thing. But um, seven years into practice, there's still cases that come across that are quite puzzling. And then when you finally figure it out, it makes your whole training worthwhile. And so do something that you think is exciting and that doesn't bore you and, and just keep that in mind. And so when I was trying to decide, do I really want to add three more years of fellowship um, into my career? Um, my husband, who I was just dating at the time, said, well, you know, you can drive the car that you're going to drive a little bit longer and, and you won't get the nice car just yet. It's just going to be a little bit longer, but it's worth it to get that extra training and just choose a career that excites you. Otherwise, you're going to get bored. Um, for those listening, she does drive a fabulous car, so she made it. <laughs> Um, and one last question. I lied. If you had to say what's your one favorite thing about being a forensic pathologist um, and neuropathologist, what is that one thing? That one thing. Um, I think that 
actually seeing some of, let me back up. So, so when I was a fellow, the person who trained me, just Dr. Paul Benson, um, would, after spending hours uh, looking for the bullet and him walking over to the table and pointing to right where it was going to be. And now I find myself able to do that with our fellows. And it's enjoyable to come to that place where they think you're a magician, but it's just because you've been doing this so long. That is probably the one thing that I enjoy the most, just walking over and pointing to right where it's going to be. And so, and then seeing the look on their faces and then telling them one day it'll happen to you too. All right. I think that wraps it up. Thank you, Dr. Gerald. I know you're a very busy you. woman. Um, my handle for anybody that is on Twitter is Nicole Jackson MD. Are you on any social media platforms? Not that. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. But I'm pretty boring. So. Well, thank you again. Thank you very much. Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. PathPod.